You're listening to a This Day original podcast. One of Nehru's key motivations was always A, to stay in charge and B, to accumulate power for himself. That's what uh, that's what politicians do. If the, if the constitution comes in the way of the urges of the people, then it's time to, to change the constitution. He says it very, very starkly. He was naive on some points and extremely shrewd on others. He was a very, he, he was a consummate politician. The Indian stance was actually, of course, they were acceding to Chinese demands when it came to Tibet. They were not acceding to Chinese demands when it came to non-recognition of the Vakohan land. My name is Mohit Satyanand and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the Reader's Room. In their book Nehru, The Debates That Shaped India, Adil Khan and Tripurdhaman Singh called Jawaharlal Nehru a man for all ages. The book focuses on debates that still occupy India 75 years later. The Muslim question, our relationship with China, and the centrality of the Constitution, particularly in the matter of free speech. Joining me in the reader's room to discuss the book is Tripurdaman Singh. Tripurdaman, you begin your book virtually by saying that Nehru forms an inseparable part of any age, not just the age uh, surrounding independence. This sounds like really, really massive praise for the man at first reading. But then the issues that you talk about uh, in the book, and I might as well name them here, the Muslim issue, the relationship with China, and uh, the primacy of the Constitution as uh, centered around the debate about the First Amendment, it sort of comes across that in your considered view, Nehru is somewhat deluded. Where do you place him between these poles? I wouldn't say he was deluded. I'd say he was he was naive on some points and extremely shrewd on others. He was a very he he was a consummate politician, and I think one of the problems with a lot of the scholarship on Nehru, especially the older generation of scholarship, was that they often discounted any sort of prosaic instrumental motivations that Nehru might have had, and. As a politician, as someone who sat in the chair that radiated executive power, one of Nehru's key motivations was always A, to stay in charge, and B, to accumulate power for himself. That's what, uh, that's what politicians do. And the approach that we took in this book was to also keep, you know, keep, uh, keep on board that these, the idea that these debates were not at one level, of course, they are sort of cerebral encounters, but they're more than just cerebral encounters because they're also him, you know, staking the political field. And so, I think taking that approach gives you gives you the gives you the impression that he's he's neither he's neither deluded nor uh, nor any sort of genius, but he is a consummate political actor. So let's start with the Muslim question. And when I read him saying. The so-called Hindu-Muslim problem. That that sounds pretty, certainly naive, if not delusional. Yes, I mean Nehru didn't. Uh, for Nehru, this was really a sideshow. He didn't. He didn't really think the religious question was of any importance. So if it was, it was certainly only of very secondary importance. And uh, for him, the the primary question was the class question. And he thought that actually all of these. Other identities, religion, probably even caste, not probably, actually even caste, 
would uh, would eventually disappear once the more primary identity of class and economic interest uh, you know took uh, took precedence and it's it's interesting when you think about it like if you ne'er imagine if you all uh, like a like a muslim farmer somewhere in UB at you know in the 1920s or 1930s what Nehru is effectively telling you is it doesn't matter that you're Muslim. That's and it doesn't matter what that you care about being a Muslim. Uh, what matters is your economic interest and your material interest. And in that, your material interest is allied with other farmers and peasants who happen to be Hindu rather than uh, your own elite, who you share a fond of religion with, but who happen to generally be large landowners and zamindars and this this thought process really was uh, let's just say it kind of ignored uh, ignored graviality quite quite a lot he went to the extent of saying i've examined the issue of communism through a telescope and if there's nothing then there's nothing to see which just sort of extends <laughs> like a telescope does this kind of blindsidedness it does it does and it's often uh, you you can see it because there's an there's a sense of obduracy there refusal to acknowledge that for millions upon millions of his countrymen this is this is an important issue and this is an identity that they wear and an identity that is of course not that goes beyond religion it goes uh, it's also an access to political mobilization because he for him it's just something that the you know elite is using to to fool the masses, to you know, to be able to you know, play their own political games, but of course, what's happening goes beyond that, which Nehru just refuses to to acknowledge. In fact, what struck me in this uh, sort of uh, correspondence between Jinnah and Nehru that you uh, bring forth in the book is that for a long time it appears as though they are really speaking past each other, not even willing to really engage with the issues. Nehru saying. Please tell me what the issues are, and Jinnah saying you should know what they are. Where where did this come from? Uh, so there's of course a personal subtext to this as well, which is that Jinnah was uh, a leader really of a generation that came before Nehru. He considered himself uh, he he was in a sense contemporary with uh, with Nehru Senior with Motilal, and Jinnah thought of Nehru as an upstart who, you know was not particularly bribed, didn't have a successful law practice, was much younger than him, and uh, really shouldn't be talking to him as equals. And so there's, of course, a sense of personal frustration that you know, that underpins uh, these layers. And Nehru takes, uh, takes a kind of approach that he's really, um, he's really tried much before with, with Gandhi, which is the approach of um, almost a student saying, you know, Please explain the problem to me. Please explain what the issues are so that I can understand, and then let's see where we can find common ground. And for Jinnah, it's almost as if initially he wants to brush it off and say, you know, why is this? Why is this upstart even writing to me? Because he says, well, you've been reading my speech, and you can read the newspaper, and uh, they they are talking past each other. But it's it's important that they don't stop talking. So this is what's interesting. Jinnah could very well have said. Uh, I'm I'm uninterested in 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 talking to you because of course there's a political subtext in 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 a sense to the conversation as well, which is that it's happening at a time when the Muslim League has done terribly in 
the elections and attempt to uh, attempt with sort of Jinnah Zwishan's Khalifa Zaman and then Bonan Azad from the Commerce side had tried to cement a coalition in UV, which is, uh, was partly torpedoed by Nehru and, of course, partly torpedoed by loud extensive demands by, by Jinnah. Then the Congress launches a, had launched a, what they called a Muslim mass contact program, and which Jinnah and the Muslim League saw as an existential threat. It was, it, it infuriated them. The reason that there is this sort of quite frigid exchange is that, in reality, what's happening is that the ground is being, is, is being laid for, uh, for the quite stark and horrifying events of the future. So just take me through the kind of dynamic that went from the disastrous elections you talked about, which is the provincial elections of uh, 1937, where um, uh, the Muslim League garnered only 5% of the Muslim vote. Um, to a situation where by the uh, mid-40s they were, in a sense, became the voice of all uh, Muslims in uh, India and uh, played a substantial role in the eventual decision to partition the country. How did this, how did, how did we go from 5% to uh, their ability to be seen as representatives of Muslims in India? There are, there are multiple explanations that historians have uh, have have brought forth, but the one that appeals to me the most, of course, is are uh, three sort of major major reasons. One, of course, was the uh, failure of the Congress mass Muslim mass contact program, so which the Congress actually attempted to ride on the coattails uh, of the Muslim clergy, and uh, the clergy that then opposed Pakistan even when partition was happening. Uh, but of course, the the logic, uh, the logic there was was really convoluted. It was a very strange alliance with a very with very conservative Muslim opinion like the Jamaat, and uh, Muslims like uh, Asaf Ali who were effectively communists. Uh, and that mass contact program really fails. It didn't. It didn't. Uh, it didn't bring Muslim voters and Muslim opinion towards the Congress. So that, of course, but what it did is that it really galvanized the league into, uh, you know, into in, into fighting the Congress and into reaching out to to its voters. The second, of course, is that while. The Muslim voters hadn't flocked to the league in 1937. They hadn't really gone all out for the Congress either. And so, what you had is the development of parties like the ones that did well were like the Unionist Party in Punjab, or the um, or the Alliance in in Bengal with Suravardi and or uh, then S. D. Mukherjee, and uh, so. It was that ground which the Muslim League targeted, where uh, actually the Muslim voter had not uh, had not slopped uh, to the Congress. So the Congress was anywhere on a weak wicket uh, when it came to the Muslims, and its refusal almost to engage substantively and seriously with the communal question uh, left open the avenue for that issue to be completely occupied. By the Muslim League, 
And of course, the third reason that I see was uh, the war in in Europe and the resignation of Congress ministries because they resigned, they left brigade open to the British and to the League, which was going to cooperate with the government in the uh, in the war effort. Uh, and then on top of that, of course, the the North Pretender movement, which ended up with all of them being locked in jail for years. Uh, while the league was given a free uh, shield, and I think all three of these really, really intertwined to kind of shift the political ground very, very substantively. When you say the Muslim League was given a free field, uh, are you implying there that there was some sort of uh, uh, tacit support by the British for the Muslim League and its uh, uh, longer term? Uh, yes. Yes, may not be tacit support for its longer-term goals in terms of the partition of a country and the creation of separate sovereign nation-states. But they definitely valued cooperation in the war effort. And this was at a time when the war in uh, the war in Europe still hung in the balance. And there was very much an existential question of which way the war would swing. And the idea was that the Congress had uh, essentially when when the going was tough, uh, the Congress had uh, had refused to support support the British war effort, and it did so, you know, against the better judgment of many people. So, people like Nehru and Rajo Bajari were not quite on board with the Quit India program and the uh, and the refusal to support the war effort. And so, of course, it's obvious that at their hour of need, when they really needed all hands on deck, the British would a resent uh, what the Bavarians was doing, and b have an element of sympathy for the for the Muslim League, which was willing to cooperate in the war effort. I know that history can't be sort of discussed in terms of counterfactuals, but I'm still going to ask you a counterfactual. Would there have been a scenario in which a less sort of intransigent Nehru? Um, could have affected some kind of uh, rapprochement between um, Jinnah and the Congress uh, party? There were potential situations where, where that could have happened. And actually, if you uh, read Lord Wavell's diary, he was very much of the opinion that if actually if you could keep Nehru and Jinnah aside and have someone else do the negotiation, there, there was quite an you know, strong likelihood that we they would have some sort of solution or some sort of compromise. So I'm not sure whether Nehru personally would have been able to do it, but uh, a lot of these experiments did fail. I mean, Wavell did try with the intergovernment, and uh, they just found it uh, they found it impossible to work with each other. Of course, there were some substantive questions on which there was no agreement, but a large part of it also had to do with oversized egos and uh, uh, kind of everyone knew by that point. To be honest, by the late 1930s, it's clear that the British are eventually going to leave and leave not too far into the future. And even if the war hadn't happened, effectively we, we were looking at... Um, the granting of independence, not that far into the future. So by that point, everyone's playing for a much larger price. They're, they're playing for power, and that leads to certain 
quite obdurate kinds of behaviors in trying to position themselves uh, for the future rather than really negotiate the terms of uh, the terms of the deal that they could work at that point in time right so um, Pakistan equals Jinnah and uh, if uh, what's left is uh, a state which doesn't allow for compromises to the Muslim League so be it for Nehru yeah indeed but his position of course shifts after um, a bit after partition because he's finally faced with being with the horrifying uh, latent violence that there is in the communal question which he had so far refused to acknowledge but which can no longer be ignored because people are slaughtering each other okay so let's move on to uh, the next uh, sort of uh, big debate that you cover in the book which is China and um, here, of course, you begin from this very, very moralistic rather than uh, in any way pragmatic stance of uh, Nehru and the fact that he has this, sees this very exaggerated kind of role for India in the post-colonial era. So uh, can you talk to us about um, uh, how he saw himself in Asia vis-a-vis -vis China and what that did to the Chinese view of India. So Nehru, as you know, the first of the generation of post-colonial leaders, was of course considered a global statesman, and he was. And he saw he saw himself in those terms, and he saw and sought to achieve a, a kind of large role for India in shaping the world order and in in effectively having a say at uh, at the global high table. But he also was a committed uh, anti-imperialist um, and leaned, of course, quite strongly to the left. So he was sympathetic to international socialism uh, and he didn't, um, in a sense, see the binary distinction between, between national questions and international questions as, as many people did. Actually, there's a there's a funny line in the uh, Jinnah Nehru correspondence where Jinnah says, "Actually, you know, you spend all your time talking about the international situation. Sometimes it's uh, you know, you can't even be considered an Indian leader." So uh, there is, um, and so what happens with China is Nehru has nursed a long-term fascination with China. Nehru sees himself as uh, China and India is somehow. Uh, in a sense, sore mates, and really going to lead it. And India, as India, also himself, as leading a kind of new dawn of international socialism uh, and Asianism. And so he, uh, in a sense, becomes China's advocate uh, on the global stage. And it's a decision that's, of course, many people take as deluded, but there is an underlying. Uh, logic to to what he does, and he wants India to play this larger than life role in global affairs. It's negotiating in Korea, it's, you know, so on and so forth. But actually, India is a poor, desperately poor um, third world country at that point, and it has neither the uh, you know economic nor the material resources to really you know play this this kind of role, and. It bridges this gap, this material gap, with Nehru's own stature and Nehru's own reputation as a global statesman. 
that reputation rests on, to quite a large extent, on Nehru being the spokesperson for socialism and uh, anti-imperialism and third worldism. And uh, given that it rests on this, Nehru uh, prizes that reputation a great deal because that's what allows India to transcend this material gap. And so he's very careful to to maintain that reputation. And that means, in one sense, keeping a distance from the West, especially from America, which he's not very impressed with anyway. And secondly, it is uh, to keep good terms with, uh, with, with socialist and communist countries, to which he's anyway sympathetic. And the Chinese didn't, didn't really reciprocate this very much. So, of course, they called him the running dog of, of Anglo-American imperialism. Uh, and at that point, of course, even within India, the communist parties are saying, uh, their, their slogan is, this freedom is false. And so the more that he's criticized for being close to the West, the more he distances himself as a way of proving his uh, socialist credentials. And actually it leads Indian diplomacy into a complete cul-de-sac because it is, in a sense, almost forced to work against its own material interests in order to keep keep this sort of reputation alive. And which is why 1962 is such a shock because when it happens, it completely destroys the intellectual foundations of prayer, well, in a sense, of Panero when one through it. Before we get to 1962, you do, in one point, um, uh, talk about the primacy of the narrative, and you say that one of the major functions of Indian diplomacy then became the projection and protection of Nehru's image as the champion of the Third World. How much of this was of his own construct, and how much of it was broadly shared internationally? It was largely of his of his own construct. I mean, there was, of course, the uh, international socialism was in vogue at that point, so Nehru was not the uh, only votary of it, but he was definitely uh, one of the strongest votaries of it. And um, Indian foreign policy was largely Nehru's domain. Uh, if we even step back from it a bit, I had mentioned the interim government to you. One of the reasons that the interim government really failed to function was that the Muslim League wanted a major significant ministry. And the major ministries at that point in time performed defense, finance, and external affairs. And the Congress didn't want to give up form for obvious reasons. They didn't want to give up defense because that was the that controlled the army. Uh, and Nehru wanted external affairs, so he kept external affairs. And so the only ministry that they were happy, or not happy, but you know, willing to part with, was finance. And so finance is the one that went to Yakat Ali Khan, and which he then used uh, to start you know, tax rates on businessmen supporting the Congress and uh, stop financing uh, Congress policies, uh, which really brought the the even 
marginally working relationship to a complete breakdown. And so this love affair with um, with external affairs and with, with foreign policy predated independence. And Meru prized it and was, you know, very jealous in guarding, guarding his turf. So it was very primarily of his own making. There's an interesting quote that um, Narendra Singh Sarida who was Mal Bapin's ADC and later ending ambassador to a, to a host of countries uh, notes in his book. Um, and you'll you notice if you, if you read Nehru at one point I say that uh, another intellectual support to the Nehru in worldview was provided by the reports from Ken Panikar who was our ambassador in Beijing. And uh, one of the jokes almost that uh, I mean Sarina makes, of uh, course, I don't quote it in the book, is he says, Panikar had become too much of a courtier while spending time in the princely states to not uh, not give the boss what, what was needed, uh, in, in a sense. And so it's very hard to get away from the fact that a lot of this was uh, almost, you know, driven very much by the prime minister's own predilections. What are the more startling points that you make in the book, which I certainly was completely unaware of, that was that during the Truman administration, there was probably a preliminary proposal to eject uh, Formosa, as it was then called, the uh, precursor to Taiwan, from the Security Council and to put India in its place, which Nehru turned down. Um, this seems like an incredible um, move to make, which is to give up your possible position on this high table for somebody who's calling you a running dog of imperialism. Yes, he turns it down very emphatically. And uh, it's one of these things that, of course, there's exchanges of letters between him and uh, his sister Vijay Lakshmi Pandit, who was ambassador to Washington at that point, uh, where they talk about it and they've called it a mischievous proposal and, uh, you know, they think it's some sort of trick uh, that America's playing to pry... India away from the damp of international socialism and to dent uh, and of course the way Nehru proves that he's not the running dog of imperialism is to say well you know look we're going to uh, we're not going to do as the Americans say and we're not going to engage with them and we're going to sacrifice this to prove to prove to you just you know how how committed we are to the to the cause and it's um, it's quite extraordinary of course, just to just just to quickly clarify, it's a it's it's a proposal that's floated by the Truman administration. Whether the proposal would actually have materialized into something substantive, one you know one can never say. But they were quite interested in uh, if India had been on board to at least try and canvas opinion and push their allies to see whether this could uh, you know this could have happened. The other thing that you bring out is the fact that uh, as the um, uh, sovereign successor to British rights in Tibet, that Nehru was not willing to bargain to retain any of them. And uh, could you just talk a little bit uh, of that? Sure. So, of course, India had inherited certain rights courtesy the, the uh, tripartite apartheid agreement between British India, Tibet, and China, which had been signed in 1914, which of course China had never uh, ratified, so they never quite accepted the the 1914 agreement or the resulting foundry of the Hakmatanet from it. So, of course, the rights that India had, which was uh, 
certain uh, trade posts and guest houses and uh, certain you know military deployments. Uh, it the the problem was that India was the legal successor to to the British Raj, but it was not the uh, it was not the global power that the British Empire had built. So even though it might have had those pretensions, whether it had the material capability of uh, following through on them without sub without the support of uh, the West was, of course, an open question. But um, for Nehru, this was, of course, a demonstration of his uh, uh, of of his magnanimity towards the Chinese and also his commitment to to the cause, so to speak to prove that he is a committed anti-imperialist and to essentially um, yeah, demonstrate that he's not uh, not in the say-so of the Anglo-American alliance. Of course, he was uh, he was he was willing to to give these up, much against the advice uh, of India's own representative in Tibet, who was at that point still a British individual, called um, Q. Richardson. If I dig a bit deeper, there is there are all of these things are quite closely connected. So he he doesn't want to do this because he wants to demonstrate uh, his commitment to international socialism. This he feels will enhance and his his reputation and his stature uh, and his position, which is what India has been essentially using to play a, a, a larger than expected role in global diplomacy, and it's. All of these things really, really linked together to provide provide the foundations of uh, of of what eventually happens. So this this you need to help me understand because, in a sense, um, um, Nehru, um, despite Patel and several other uh, colleagues uh, pushing him in the opposite direction, he virtually acceded to all of China's demands even before they were made. Um, and yet you say, thus were laid the grounds for 1962. But if India was not putting up a, a tough stance against China, why did that not automatically lead to peace? What was it about the Indian stance that inevitably led to 1960? No, the Indian stance was actually, of course, they were acceding to Chinese demands when it came to Tibet. They were not acceding to Chinese demands when it came to non-recognition of the Vakohan land. And India did or for on this time claimed that the frontier was settled, which of course was not the Chinese position. And the other subtext to this is supposed for India to be able to effectively resist uh, the Chinese in Tibet uh, would have inevitably meant uh, for it to um, at least work closely uh, with the rest, which is which is the only way that an effective resistance in Tibet could have been mounted, uh, which which it didn't want to do because, of course, that would have shaken the, destroyed the image that Nehru had cultivated and the reputation that Nehru had cultivated. The clash with the Chinese actually comes when, after having given up uh, on Tibet, India is unwilling to give up on Arunachal, the Chinese refer to South Tibet, and to outside China, which is, you know, which is still the site of uh, quite active confrontation. And so this, because Nehru is so convinced that war is an impossibility, 
and he's convinced war is an impossibility because he thinks that it will lead to some some global conflagration. Uh, he is not really worried about uh, any sort of large armed conflict. Of course, he is aware that there are Chinese designs in a in sense to to occupy parts of what they consider to be Chinese territory. I guess there's never what Putin and others are doing and aren't, isn't just pushing him on the question of China. The way they're pushing him is, of course, to reopen the questions of the very foundations of uh, of narrowing foreign policy. And that he's just unwilling to do. So you're saying that the greater sin is not the fact that he um, uh, was willing to uh, be, in a sense, subservient to China, but the fact that he was not willing to engage with the West. That, that in a sense, was the greater sin. Uh, that was... I mean, that was what was leading Indian foreign policy down down his cul-de-sac, where it was actually oh, being subservient to China in the hope that that would uh, somehow, um, you know, somehow prove to them how friendly we were. But on the other hand, refusing to engage with the West on the question of uh, of Tibet and of you know supplying all supporting the Tibetan resistance because that would dent uh, the stated aims of offering foreign policy, which of course were uh, when non alignment uh, supposedly on the merits of the which was quickly uh, as I know the book quickly jettisoned in first of well and or modernized agenda. Okay. Let's move on to the politics of uh, post-independence India and what you call the first great clash of ideas in India, the First Amendment. So what were the political uh, considerations that caused Gandhi, uh, caused uh, Nehru to uh, uh, bring about the First Amendment so shortly after uh, the Constitution was uh, written? I mean, there are two. There's the, of course, the written and the uh, unwritten, uh, or, or I guess the uh, so the, the the reason that he gives, of course, is that the constitution was blocking his government's progressive agenda, which of which these two pillars, of course, affirmative action and zamindari uh, abolition, uh, are cited very very prominently. And uh, his reasoning is that being legislature is uh, as elected by the people is supreme, and therefore. He, he cannot go back to the people and tell them that uh, all of these things that the Congress has promised over uh, real decades, uh, something very abolition for itself into something they'd been championing since the 1930s uh, and planning, well, I can fire best the state's rural and rural industry. Right. It's something that they'd, again, been, been, been championing since the 1930s. So uh, his logic is that you can't, or he can't at least, go back to the people and say these things can't be fulfilled because the constitution is now coming in the way. And he's, as he says, uh, the legislature is supreme, and if it's a question of if the, if the constitution comes in the way of the urges of the people, then it's time to, to change the constitution. He says it very, very starkly. Of course... There's a lot of problems with this, uh, both of his reasoning and the uh, and uh, points that he advances, because none of them are entirely true. 
And the underwritten subtext is that this is, of course, in a paragraph by the executive. It's a, it's a method to cement executive dominance in the Indian political system. And Nehru, at the end of the day, was a centralizer and B, you know, was, was invested in uh, in this executive dominance because he himself was was the executive. I guess the underwritten reasoning is is as important as the as the written reasoning. Right. So land reform required uh, the right to property to be uh, uh, to be uh, removed. Though there there is, as you mentioned in the book, the possibility that you could still do it legally without removing the right to property from the constitution. But let's not get into that. Uh, caste based uh, reservation means that. Uh, you have to remove the right to freedom from discrimination because even affirmation is a form of uh, discrimination. And what was the justification for curtailing the right to free speech, which is such an important constituent of a free constitution? Uh, again, the the reasoning was that uh, the he again adduces he sticks on to a, a quite minor point really, which is that. There had been a case in Bihar where someone had been preaching our violent revolution and the uh, court had upheld that as uh, as you know as falling within the ambit of the right to freedom of speech and one of the judges had mused you know saying that the only exceptions to the right to free speech um, don't uh, don't cover incitement to to violence or incitement to to crime. And uh, he, at the end, um, Justice Sardu Prasad was uh, was his gentleman saying he muses. But hopefully, the Supreme Court will clarify his positioning um, at some point. Now, this is at the end of the day, it was it was one of these things that eventually, of course, would have uh, would have been judicially determined at some point. But politically, Nehru had come under very, very stark criticism. Uh, he was being criticized very heavily from the left. Uh, that was for partly for, that was delays in land reforms and things which uh, we really touched upon, but partly also because at that point the Communist parties were an open, you know, armed rebellion and. Um, the Indian security forces and the Indian police had been dealing with it quite quite starkly. There was a lot of violence in places like Tanagana and uh, one of the instances, the famous instance that uh, uh, that of course triggers a ban on the communist uh, leading magazine Crossroads was that the police in Salem or Tamil Nadu um, not a bunch of communist detainees in a in a horn and didn't open fire on them from point black range in in, in jail and shot I think about some twenty twenty five of them dead and this led to sort of the crosswords published in scathing articles against Nehru uh, and against the Congress government and the Madras government uh, retaliated by banning uh, circulation of this news magazine in Macross, which is challenged in the Supreme Court, uh, and the Supreme Court overturned the ban and uh, also declared the requisite legislation, which had been used, public safety legislation, as being ultra virus. So, and you had a similar sort of story unfold in Delhi 
um, with vis-a-vis the organizer, which was the RSS News Magazine, which had been criticizing him for uh, a kind of uh, soft policy, if one could say, towards Pakistan and towards the situation in Bengal, where, of course, uh, in East Pakistan, there had been concerted violence, state-backed violence against the Hindu minority, which had led to huge numbers of refugees pouring to West Bengal and, of course, criminal tension there. So, and it was these two uh, parallel cases which, as Patel once said, you know, knocked the not the floor out of the uh, out of the provisions, the legal arsenal that the government had to clamp down on freedom of speech and on very uh, uh, core the things that you know they really didn't want printed or didn't want said. And Nehru personally saw much of the criticism from the right, uh, which as an attempt to in fact bully him or to mount public pressure on him to take uh, much. Uh, uh, a much more militarized uh, line towards uh, towards Pakistan that he that he wanted to. Now the problem here is that you have this is a perfectly legitimate way to mount public pressure because well how else is public pressure to be mounted in a in a democracy? And uh, um, but that's that that's not how that's not how 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 Nehru sees it, and so he. Uh, it, he he quite rails against the press over the over the first year year of of the republic being being in place, and he, if you read his speech during the amendments debate, which is reduced in the book, he the reasons he adduces are would be very similar to readers in the contemporary world, you know, for this fake news that. Uh, they, that the press don't be trusted, that uh, the press is actually just a uh, front for other interests, uh, generally moneyed interests owned by uh, owned by owned by press doyers. And uh, Soros wasn't well. Actually, he was born, but I don't think he was. Uh, uh, but of course, there were there were others. And uh, then of course he he runs off by saying, you know, look at all of this that's printed. What will be the effect on our, uh, you know, it's not me, of course, taking the moral high ground, you know, it's not me, I'm not bothered by criticism, but I'm really bothered by what the effects of uh, reading this will be on our youth and on our young people and on our, you know, soldiers. And on our... Right. What's, so, what's really interesting over here is how, uh, despite all of this, uh, uh, the narrative around Nehru is still of a liberal, and the person opposing him most strongly in these debates is uh, Mukherjee, who... Uh, is very much uh, an um, an icon of the right, but he was a person who argued very vehemently for free speech and individual liberty. He did, and uh, the curious thing about Mukherjee, of course, is that he is, of course, he he is closely associated associated with Hindu nationalism, and there's no denying that he, uh, in a sense, was uh, you know was was a Hindu nationalist. But uh, he was also the president of the All India Civil Liberties Conference, and so he was a man who was very committed to uh, to that cause. And he's one of the few people to, um, of course, Nehru is opposed outright by by a whole galaxy of individuals. Of course, 
they don't have uh, they don't have enough biomimicry firepower to repulse them effectively. But Mukherjee is an is an interesting interesting figure in this because the what he says at uh, at the end is uh, is quite stark and quite prophetic. And he says, you know, maybe uh, maybe you rule for you know for the next generations and for generations yet unborn. But you know what what will happen if another party comes to power? And I think that that's quite a prophetic sort of warning to what he ends on. Yes, it was very, very strong, and uh, uh, the quote I remember from towards the end of this is, here is a beginning of the encroachment of the liberty of the people in free India, um, which we can see unwinding day by day. Tripurdaman, thanks so much for, first of all, for this wonderful book, which took me into realms which uh, I rarely traverse, and uh, then for being with us and giving... uh, uh, our listeners and insight into the debates that uh, shaped India. Before I end, I'm supposed to ask you what you're reading now. I am currently reading uh, Manu Pillay's book on uh, on the Dimarajas, its core force allies, and uh, it's it's supremely interesting so far. And he is a very talented uh, writer, and so it, it's giving me it's giving me very pleasure. Thanks so much to Purdaman, and uh, in your other profession, uh, which I hope comes about into the world of haute couture, I hope to welcome you into Kumar one day and uh, show you around the silks and the woolens of uh, of my adopted uh, region of the world. One day, I'm 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 really hopeful. Fingers crossed. All the very best. For more such podcasts, articles, trivia, and interesting bits of information from the world of history, heritage, arts, and culture, make sure to visit thisday.app. You can also check out the This Day app on Google Play Store and iOS App Store.